Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, thanks for coming out on such a, a beautiful, beautiful evening. Uh, before we begin, I should mention, let's see, I had to cancel the class I was going to do with Port Townsend School of Art when I was so ill, and so we've rescheduled it for this weekend. A couple of people asked me about that, so it's this Saturday. If you're interested, it's up on their, on their website. You can still register. There's one or two slots available. But, um, so it has been rescheduled. If you had already signed up, thank you for being patient with the, for the class to be reoffered. But now that I'm back to full health, we're ready to roll. All right, uh, this evening's topic is Goethe. Um, why is he a forgotten thinker? One, because we're not German. If we were German, he would not have been forgotten. He would absolutely 100% be one of your central intellectual figures. Everybody would know practically everything about him and his biography. It's a, the, the core of the German curriculum, literary curriculum and historical curriculum, philosophical curriculum, pretty much focuses on Goethe. The best prize you can win in Germany for writing is a Goethe Prize because it means you write pretty well, not as well as Goethe, of course, but still pretty well. Um, you know, he is the iconic figure for their uh, intellectual tradition. He's had the most influence on German. He, he and Luther probably are the, two, well, not probably, almost certainly the two most influential forces in shaping the German language, uh, Luther and Goethe, Goethe and Luther. He was, of course, hugely influenced himself uh, by Luther's writings, and so those two sort of go together. But he's, he's even more influential in German than Shakespeare is in English. I mean, he is absolutely core, and yet, in the United States in particular, and I think in the non-German speaking world in general, we just don't know him. He's just virtually unknown. I mean, everybody's heard of him, but no one ever reads anything he's ever written. I think that's the key, right? We, oh, Goethe, he's this German guy who wrote a poem um, or two. We'll see he wrote somewhat more than two, as it turns out. And so I want to, this evening, sort of depart slightly. I want to mention why he's so influential, but then I want to talk go through how his thought works by talking about why we don't read him. Because I think it's very illustrative of both what he was doing and, and how it doesn't jive with the way we think about and approach the world. And so I'm going to go through like sort of the barriers to trying to understand Goethe um, in our own culture. As for his influence, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's so wide and so deep, it's just hard to pinpoint anything. Um, he is probably the most significant influence um, on Kant uh, and Hegel and Nietzsche. Uh, Darwin springs to mind. All kinds of uh, Sartre, by the way, did a fair bit of lifting from Goethe without attribution, which is always nice. Um, you know, this it, it just goes on and on and on. If you, if you can read German, then Goethe is your man. He, he's... Uh, he's launched an entire genre of writing, which in German is called the Bildungsroman, which is sort of the novel of education with, the, uh, um, with one of the novels he wrote. He, he launched three different kinds of theater, classical German theater, the sort of revolutionary Sturm und Drang uh, theater, he, the romantic theater. I mean, he just, just he'd write one kind, everybody would go, wow, this is great, and then he'd start another movement, right? So it was just this continual output, and we'll talk about that. Um, but why is he not been received here in the non-German speaking world? 
uh, first, particularly in America, which I want to focus on, um, he's, he wrote in German. And in America, in the Constitution, somewhere it says, we will not learn a foreign language. Uh, and, and anyone who writes poetically, even if their literary, literature is poetic, um, but even a thinker like Goethe, who, who wrote uh, non-poetic works, but all of his writing is very poetic and beautiful in its structure, loses a lot in translation. And so someone who writes very dry, even very confusing works like Kant, translates well. Because you don't lose the poetry because in German it wasn't there to begin with. Uh, and, and, but, but his loses so much of the resonance and beauty, just the, the, the pleasure of reading his material dies. And so that's one of the things that, that gets lost. Also the subtlety is often lost. The condensed subtlety of his language and use of German uh, often does not translate well. In fact, almost invariably does not translate well. The music of it is lost. So the German is one thing. Um, but a bigger one that I think is uh, clear across the ages, it, I want the first quote there, is from uh, Hermann Hesse, actually, another German author. So it's not just the German. He says, For what I always hated and detested and cursed above all things was this contentment, this healthiness and comfort, this carefully preserved optimism of the middle classes, this fat, prosperous brood of mediocrity. That's from Steppenwolf. And in that novel, the the main character, Harry Holler, by the way, Herman Hesse, it's not very confusing, um, meets Goethe a couple of times, but one time in particular he meets the older Goethe, the, the courtier Goethe, the Goethe who's been ennobled. He's been working in court for a long time. And he says, the, the character says to Goethe, you should have died young, you should have died suffering. It's unbearable that you lived to a pleasant, genial, successful old age. It's not right. I think this is the first barrier that we have with Goethe, is all of the cliches about genius and artistic productivity are fundamentally disproven by his existence. One, he lived a long, healthy, pleasant, often wonderful life. He thought that if, he said, you know, you're going to suffer because life has suffering in it, but don't go out and look for it. He managed his money well. One of the important things about his biography is his grandfather made the family money. So he grew up in uh, Frankfurt, which was a free city, and this is important, we'll talk about this, um, in in very comfortable circumstances, sort of uh, uh, wealthy. Um, But that money was passed on. His parents didn't blow it. They lived comfortably. They didn't blow their money. He inherited a bunch of it, but also passed it on. His, the, the descendants of the family pass it on. So this notion of, you know, can you handle money? No, geniuses are not supposed to be able to handle money, right? They're supposed to despise it or blow it or throw it away or die in miserable poverty. Goethe was like, no, you know, money is a tool. You want to handle it well, and then you don't have to worry about it. You know, use it for pleasure, enjoy it, be moderate with it, and life is, is more pleasant. And this notion that he just continually pursued the wonderful, the beautiful, the pleasant, the uplifting, the ennobling of himself and those around him 
rather than the suffering and the uh, poverty and the pain. And, and he's like, no, why would you do that? And this is precisely the charge that the, the character in Steppenwolf, Herman Hesse, is actually Herman Hesse speaking for himself, having to come to grips with this. You know, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to be mad. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be crazy. You can be healthy. Not only be healthy, you can pursue health. Not only have pleasure, but pursue a moderate pleasure-filled life. Be a bon vivant, essentially. Make joy part of your healthy, productive process. And this does not stop the production of great works, as we'll see. So this is our first challenge, is he sort of, you want to read his biography and see, you know, pain and struggling and strife, and it's there. I mean, he had his share of setbacks. I mean, he was, he was mortal. He had the human condition. But mostly he thought, well, don't dwell on that. Learn from it. Try to avoid it where possible. So first, is his, his example sort of is... is um, it's, I think it, in some ways it makes us feel less because we, we go, oh, you know, well, you know, if you have to suffer and be painful and all for genius, well, I don't want to be a genius because I don't want all of that stuff. Or, or, or if I were just poorer or if I were just outcast, then it would be easier to be a genius. He was, it was none of that. And, and yet he was one of the great uh, thinkers and, and writers in history. Um, the next reason is... And this is what Sartre sort of lifted from him whole cloth, was he did not believe that we have an essence. He believed man and woman was the sum of their actions. What you do is what you are. But doing in the broader think of what you think, what you learn, what you experience. But what you do in the world is what you are. Two quotes from him on that. Uh, Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. And the second quote, um, to think is easy, to act is hard, but the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with your thinking. Right. So, you know, uh, what, what you do is what you are. This was his fundamental principle. The doing is what makes the person. You, you show me a man's acts, I'll tell you who he is. You show me how he treats other people. In fact, he has another quote I was going to use. He said, at some point, I forget where, it might be in his conversations with Eckerman. Uh, he says, uh, show me how a man treats those who can do nothing for him, and I will tell you his character. Something, something like that. Right? So this notion that what you do makes you what you are. In theory, this is what we like. We'll talk about why this is not so much so in practice, but in his time period, what you were was how you were born. You were born a nobleman. That was who you were. You had an essence. You were a Protestant or a Catholic. That was who you were. You had your essence. You were a German or a French. That was your essence. All this notion of, 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 of patriotism and nationalism that was growing, the aristocracy and your position in society, based it was all based on birth and heredity. And he said, no, no, you're not, not who you are has nothing to do with how you're born, your heredity, 
uh, where you're born. He had no use for patriotism at a time of, of, of wild German nationalism. He was not anti-French, even when the French were invading his, his homeland, because he just didn't think that way. It was not how you were born, who you were born to. It was what you do with what you have. He was utterly convinced of this. Um, and this notion of, of the drive to action meant that all kinds of things that we like to think about, he challenges. Uh, for instance, I think we're, we're a culture of people who are striving to arrive. Right? We're, we're going to get someplace. And when we get there, everything's going to be great. We're going to be able to stop acting. And sometimes this is looking forward. Oh, I'm going to have a career and then I'll have money and I'll retire and then I'll be done. And sometimes it's looking back, oh, my heritage is I'm Scottish or I'm Dutch or I came over from South Africa. That's who I am. Often it has a lot to do with patriotism. We're Americans. We're Washingtonians. We're for, we're for Donald Trump or we're for Ted Cruz or we're for Hillary Clinton or we're for Bernie Sanders. That's who I am. I'm, it's an affinity or it, it, there's something in me that is my essence. And we have just any number of ways that we look for this, that we try to say that this is me, it's fixed, it's stable, it's there. No, absolutely not. Goethe says, no, it is what you do, what you think, what you undertake that makes you who you are. And, that, and I think there's a lot of us that reject, we, we reject this. One reason we reject it, besides the fact that we're giving up essence, by the way, this is the, the existentialist argument. If you're figure, familiar with existentialism, this is, this is precisely what Sartre was pointing out. And again, he lifted it directly from Goethe. And this is the notion that, you know, if you pick up a knife, you can look at its design and go, oh, this was made for cutting things. But if you pick up a person, it wasn't made for anything. It has capacities, affinities, desires, emotions, thoughts, but it's not for anything. It has no essence. It has no purpose. It has no direction. Now, oddly, existentialists took this to be very depressing. Goethe was like, no, this is great. This is what freedom means. It means you can make it yourself, but the only way to do that is to do it. You make yourself. In theory, we give a lot of lip service to the self-made man. In practice, it makes us nervous. Not least, and Goethe talks about this in all kinds of places, because it opens you up to judgment. Because people can see what you do. And if what you do is who you are, well, you're going to be judged. And Goethe said, fine. It's, it's, the, it's the quote I used earlier from, uh, I think it's Aristotle, who says, if you do not wish to be criticized, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Right? And, that, and, that, and then that Goethe is right there in that mode. Um, following along this idea uh, of action, therefore, is development. Um, those who hope for no other life are those who hope for no other life are dead even for this. Um, and what he means by that is if you say, this is it, I've arrived, I need nothing else, 
you're dead. Once you stop, you've died because since life is action, it follows with perfect logic that you must keep acting. You must keep developing. And to stop developing is essentially, he says, to die. Even if you're alive, he says, you're dead. And to, and to oppose it, he says, is essentially inhuman. And you'll see this in the, in the uh, longer quote here. Um, <clears throat> People often say to themselves in life that they should avoid a variety of occupation and, more particularly, be less willing to enter upon new work the older they grow. But it is easy to talk and easy to give advice to oneself and to others. To grow old is itself to enter upon a new business. All the circumstances change, and a man must either cease acting altogether or willingly and consciously take over the new role. Even if you do everything the same, the world changes around you. If you stop changing and growing and doing and trying new things, you're dead. For Goethe, this is the definition of dying. But this has a whole series of corollaries for him that are important to, 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 to follow out. Because you're always doing new things, you should always be failing. No, seriously. And this is one thing we absolutely have no use for in the United States. A failure is anathema to us. Uh, Kaufman, by the way, who we did a couple months ago, he said there is no true tragedy in the United States. You can't have a tragic American story or film or play because tragedy is noble failure. And in the United States, we do not admit that failure can be noble. Failure is simply lack of success, and success is good, therefore failure is bad, therefore failure is simply tawdry and means you're unworthy. Goethe says, no, failure means you're alive. Failure means you got up your ass and tried to do something. But we know it's success. We're all about success. We, we, you know, and if you don't succeed, something is wrong. No, fear success in small things. That's from Nietzsche. Nietzsche hugely influenced by Goethe. And that's the concept. If you're going to do new things, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have errors. And you have to be okay with that. In fact, you should, in theory, we should embrace that. Um, but we don't. Right? <laughs> we know how many times every every year in the newspaper some student someplace gets a perfect SAT score. Right? That and that's always the great that oh there it is. Perfection. That is the greatest thing. Wouldn't oh if you get whatever 10 points less than perfection, you were so close to doing okay. <laughs> you were just this far away. You could have been you could have been there. Um, that, that really is the, this is the, the American ideal, I think, is, is that, that endless pursuit of the hopeless perfection. The notion that you should be effortlessly great. We love the child prodigy, I think, for that reason. By the way, uh, Goethe had a wonderful education as a youth, but he was not a prodigy in any way. Um, it's, 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 it's just no one ever said at any point that, oh, wow, this guy, they always said he's a remarkable human being and it was a pleasure to meet him. 
Um, but no one said, wow, he's just this unnaturally brilliant or incredibly insightful or incisive child. Or they just said, wow, no, he's, he's, he's an amazing person, but not a prodigy. There was no you know, nascent greatness that we'd look at him and go, oh, he's going to be perfect. And so, but this notion of allowing yourself to fail goes along the idea of, of twofold that went with this notion of development and action. One, we live in an imperfect world. You may have noticed this. Uh, if, you, if you haven't, you know, I don't know. Good for you. Um, and we're imperfect people. And, and we have a hard time accepting either of these. So people are continually saying, oh, the world is unjust. It's like, yes. You know, Right, you're, yes. I, don't know, I never know what to say to that when people go, oh, well, this is not fair. I'm like, welcome to history. You know, it didn't stop. It's probably not going to stop anytime soon. We could prefer it to be otherwise, but it's that the world is how it is. Ah, and we are as we are. And those are very great challenges to be able to look at ourselves and say, I am flawed, and that is all right. My flaws are as much a part of me as my supposed other qualities, qualities that might be better or perceived as better. They're still us. Nietzsche said, uh, quoting the you know, great, know thyself, he said, if I knew myself, I would run away. Which is, which is a great quote from someone who really did work very hard to know himself. And he believed in this notion that it is okay to have flaws, to recognize them, and adjust accordingly. But you don't deny them, and you don't berate yourself. You don't say, oh, I'm not the person I should be. Oh, you know, all this self-flagellation, he hated it. He said, the world is imperfect, and there's suffering in the world, but most of the suffering in the world that we experience, we bring on ourselves. It's not the outside world making us suffer. It's us making us suffer. It's not the forces exterior to us most of the time. It's really our response to the world that, that, that drives it. And so he had, so he, he, he's continually working against this, continually trying to train himself out of it. This is the last major feature. He was the, he, you know, he should have written self-help books because this is how he lived his life. It was his character above all else that was so hugely influential for those around him and going back to Steppenwolf. Um, and Herman Hesse, and that is the final reason, I think, that, that we really have a hard time dealing with him. Because he would not stop changing. He has no system, there is no central work, although you can say the Faust, we'll talk about the Faust works in a second. Um, he did not stop growing and changing, he didn't settle down, he didn't, you know, say, well, here's what it all means, but he continually worked to improve himself and his life circumstances, to make his life more pleasant, more beautiful, more wonderful, more engaging, and, and with, filled with less suffering, and to be more pleasant and more fun for those people around him. 
And this is, this is what he, everybody wanted to be with him because they just basically said, wow, he's just a pleasant, engaging, admirable human being. Um, so yeah, this is, and so those barriers are, are real because we love system. We're a famously ideological country and it's true. We really do believe in ideology. We're abstract truths. That's what we like. Uh, Goethe was really, particularly this shows and shines in his poetry. Read any of his poetry. If you want to start with some poetry, uh, read his, his eroticism from Rome, right? Just his Italian, are Italian erotic, Roman elegies? Roman elegies, but they're really, it's erotic poems from, from Rome. Um, they're perfectly graphic. He didn't say, oh, you're so beautiful. I mean, he said, yes, you are beautiful and lovely. But what he really said is, I don't like women who like necklaces and chains and jewelry because I just want to get their clothes off. I want you to be naked, and I want your dress to fall on the floor and be neatly folded when I put you in the large, warm bed. I'm quoting more or less. It's not beautifully poetic the way he put it, but this is the... And so what he's saying is why he prefers the, 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 the less noble women to the noble women, because he says, noble women, too much clothes, too much jewelry. Get that stuff off. <laughs> it's a beautiful, direct, lovely, concrete poem. Uh, and, and the whole, the whole thing is, they're, they're just, but his writing, his mind was specific, realistic, and concrete. That's why his poetry is still powerful, you know, several hundred years later. Not abstract, not complicated, not confusing. He has this great passage, actually Kaufman uh, translates it, um, from uh, an attack that he leveled on <clears throat> Newton's theories of light. And we'll talk about this in a second, but the language in there is he's like, Newton built this castle. He laid the foundation, but the people who came later built unnecessary rooms and an edifice that's too tall. And then another generation came in and they tried to shore up what the generation before them had built. And they get this huge, and it's this beautiful architectural description. And he says, but well, what we need to do is raise it back to the foundations because it's not the building that was meant to be there. His language is, even in this case, when it's an analogy, it's always very concrete, direct, not far-flung, not uh, abstract, not ideological. People said, oh, you know, they're always right. You must hate the French. He's like, what are the French? You must be a German nationalist. He's like, no, I don't believe in Germany. I believe in people. I know some people. I like some French people. I don't like some French people. Why would I like or hate the French? What, what, what could that possibly mean? You know, he just resisted that. Take the individual as they come. And so his example, his unwillingness to, 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 to stray too much into abstraction, his lack of system, his absolute desire to continually develop, sort of throws us off. His collected works, by the way, are over 100 volumes, like 149 volumes. So he just wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, and I want to go through some of the major stuff on the back here, but it's important to note that it, was just, it just kept being different. And he was famous from about 23, when his first works came out, till he died. Uh, at, um, what was he? he was 80-something. He lived a very long, very, very healthy life. And... Throughout his life, when he published something, it was sort of an event. He was a celebrity. And so people followed his development. They, they read it in newspapers, even if they didn't read the works. 
right? They wanted to know, hey, what is, what is Goethe up to? You know, they wanted to know what he was doing, what, what he was making. And then something new would come out, and it would astound them. But, there was, but you couldn't go, oh, here's this system, here's this person. You can't say, well, read this book by Goethe and you'll have him. Right? You can't say, well, here's the sort of work that you would... No, there is no identifiably Goethe-esque work except for the works by him. I mean, they just... It's this big, sprawling mass. So let's take a look at him and do a little biography as we go through here. Um, uh, it, and by the way, again, 140-some volumes, so this is hugely narrowed down. I mean, just, I've, I've had, I, it was almost impossible to narrow it this much. And um, So the first one that really established him was the Goetz von Berlichen, which is a, a drama. And if anybody's ever, anybody know this one? It's, 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 it's a historical drama, and I don't, it's just not very good. <laughs> it, it, I don't think it's held up well. It's kind of interesting. Um, but, the, but the narrative here is, is very simple. It's Goetz is, is um, he's a decentish fellow, but he's not equipped to deal with the modern world. Bureaucracy and administration is here, and Goetz is just an old-fashioned, noble guy that lives on the land, and he can't adjust. It's roughly the struggle there. And this is the drama that sort of launched the Sturm und Drang period. The, uh, Storm and stress is the translation. People of Storm and stress, this is how it's usually translated. In German, uh, Drang has more of a doing stuff. Not stress happens to us, but Drang is, you know, drive or thrust or go out and, and you know, desire. So it has more of an of a active ring in the German. Um, but it was sort of, so this is, if you, if you read about that movement, that work was always considered one of the central works. It was also the last work Goethe wrote like that. It's like, well, that's okay, I'm not, he, he saw limitations, he developed new experiences. Um, then he did The Sorrows of Young Werther, right? This is the uh, one that made him an international celebrity. He was known in literary circles for goats, but then with The Sorrows of Young Werther, it was for a while the best-selling book besides the Bible in, in Germany, in the German-language countries. There really wasn't a unified Germany yet, but in the German-speaking area of Europe and basically all across Europe. That thing just sold and sold and sold and sold. Hugely influential. If you don't know the plot, basically young man um, falls in love with unavailable woman, is sort of spurned by society ever so slightly, uh, moves to the countryside, sees beautiful things, and shoots himself and dies. Um, Goethe wrote this as a critique of excessive sentimentality. This was not how it was read. It was read as the seminal work in the sentimental movement, right? Here we go, launching another movement. Uh, and, and for the rest of his life, he sort of regretted the fact that everyone read it wrong. He's like, no, no, it was, he's, he's kind of an idiot, right? He's, there's nothing that bad has happened to him that he should need to go out and kill himself. You know, he, it, it, it's, it's not that bad, and he meant it that way. So actually, later, years later, he went back and rewrote it a little bit to make it even clearer, but it didn't make any difference, right? People... People still said this is, and people. I mean, this was so influential that people, uh, young people, would dress like Goethe. I mean, like Goethe, scratch it, like Werther. They would go around and dress in the kind of outfit that it was described that he would wear, and they'd go to the places 
that, that, that Werther was reputed to go and they would sort of gaze and they'd be depressed and they'd be overwhelmed by emotion. And Goethe's like, oh, shh, really, guys? No, 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 wrong message, wrong message. But it didn't, it didn't matter, right? So he was influential even when he didn't want to be influential. Uh, so he spent his entire life sort of regretting the success of that work, but it did launch him officially. It was so successful that he got sort of picked up famously by the, the uh, Duke in Weimar, and he became a member of the court. And then he worked more or less for the rest of his life with a few breaks very diligently. He was like inspector of mines, in charge of roads. For a while, he was sort of in charge of military recruitment, which is just hard to imagine because he was not a military person, but he, uh, saw, he, he oversaw thousands of court cases. Um, he was an incredibly efficient administrator. This is one of the things that people don't like about him. If you're this incredible poetic genius writing the greatest works in literature, most celebrated even in his own lifetime, you cannot be an effective court administrator. We just know this is true. But he's like, I like being a court administrator. I get a nice paycheck, I live in a nice house. I like where I live. I like the people I hang out with. I get to run the court theater, which unsurprisingly performed a lot of Goethe's plays. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, this is, this, it gave him a, a, an opportunity actually to work out a lot of his dramatic uh, uh, parts. In fact, in some of his plays, their parts were written specifically because they didn't have professional actors and actresses. So he'd just write him for like, you know, the guy who was the treasurer. And he would go to the Duke and say, you know, make the treasurer there play this part. And like, why? Like, because it's going to be hilarious. Oh, okay. And so all these people, who, you're okay, we're in a Goethe play. Excellent. You know, here we go. Um, and so they had big fun with it. I mean, it wasn't a serious, dramatic play. I mean, he wrote some very serious, dramatic plays, but often they were being played by, by just random people from around the court that he would recruit. Or people, everybody wanted to visit him because he was so famous. And so you'd show up for a visit. And he'd go, oh, hey, would you like to be in one of my plays? We're going to do it next week. Here's the part. Okay, that'll be fun. You know, so I had this sort of much more homey, you know, friends and family putting on plays and productions. So all the evidence is, generally speaking, he enjoyed himself. He liked his life there at the court. Well, he stayed almost his entire life, pretty much his entire life. Um, so after that, uh, you know, he wrote, oh, just this hard, Iphigenia and Taurus, which is an amazing place. It colors of a classical drama. It's the story, if people know it, the story of Iphigenia was the, the daughter of Agamemnon. And before he could, Agamemnon could sail off to fight in the Trojan War, uh, the god said, look, you know, the wind is going to be against you, and you won't, we won't let you sell unless you sacrifice your daughter. Now, the human sacrifice was not really big in the Greek world, so this was sort of a sketchy thing to do. But he did. He, he tied her up and slit her throat in front of all his troops so that he could get favorable winds. And then, of course, they sailed off to the Trojan War, and everything ended happily ever after. <laughs> not really that happily, yeah. But... Um, but this is one of the big moments in Greek tragedy and history, because there's several plays about this uh, that have been written. Goethe rewrote it that actually Iphigenia is sort of spirited off. The gods save her at the last minute. They won't let her be sacrificed. And so it's a fascinating meditation. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful play. And then just because he's Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche's Kreta, not Nietzsche, he's Goethe, he wrote The Metamorphosis of Plants which is a very long, it's in, uh, it's written in poet, poetic form, um, 
But it's a long meditation on the structure and evolution of plants, before evolution, by the way, is a concept, really. And he makes the argument, which is fundamentally correct, that the different parts of plants are essentially all related to the leaves. That leaves actually just transform themselves into all the different features. Now, some of his observations about this are correct, some of them are incorrect, but the key idea here is, again, development. That the plant has within it the potential to be all of these different things, but it has to develop them. But it develops them all out of the same source, essentially the leaf. Now, this was influential concept at the time, and again, fundamentally, it turns out to be right. This is the evolutionary biological concept, as we know it today, that you don't, uh, we don't grow a hand, right? All of a sudden, we don't just develop a hand out of no place. The hand grows out probably from fins, we think, that we had when we were fish, right? And that, so that this metamorphosis of our body parts is a long biological process, evolutionary process, and that you can see the evolution because the same part can get used in various different ways. And he tracked that down through observation. So here have this strange, so, so so far, what has he written? He's written three or four of the most influential plays in the German language. He's written uh, a bunch of poetry that people loved. He's written absolutely the most popular novel to date in Europe. And so he's like, I know, I'll write a like 80-page poem uh, that goes through, I think, 53 different species of plants and explains how the leaves relate to the other stamen and pistils and seeds and it's really, that's going to be a bestseller is what he was thinking. This is what people have been waiting for. Right? And, and he did it because he was interested in plants and he didn't care what people were interested in. And again, the fact that so many of his observations turn out to be fundamentally correct at a very deep level. I mean, they were correct in the surface level because he was actually looking at what plants did. But his theory that he developed from that was very accurate. It, it was shockingly accurate, by the way. Is that Darwin was like, there you go. You've got some ideas. This, this is this influence spread. He was read by scientists. So like, damn, we have to take him seriously. Um, you know, so that, you know, but this is what we did his whole life. So then he wrote um, the Roman elegies. By the way, elegies. The original thing is Roman erotica. So you know, I don't know when they decided to put elegies in to sort of sort of, well, let's call it elegies. Um, it, it's basically, I went to Rome. It's gorgeous there, and there's a lot of women. <laughs> and I like them. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the, and, and uh, beautiful descriptions of gardens where you make love and old castles where you make love, and Roman ruins where you make love. This is sort of the Roman elegies. Um, so then you got, so, so he, you know, he follows up this tour de force in, in plant science uh, and, and, and phenomenology of plants with erotic poetry, followed by Wilhelm Meister's Lariar, the Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship. Which is, a, which is a fascinating novel, if anybody's read this one. It is the, it's, it's an education novel. Again, in German they call him Bildungsroman. Um, and if you're a German novelist, I believe it's a law that you have to write one or two of these. Um, Hermann Hesse's is called Unterenrad, Beneath the Wheel. Um, because for Hesse was sort of depressed all the time, and so he wrote Beneath the Wheel. Uh, and he said, no, this has a happy ending, by the way. But it is this education novel about the development of Wilhelm Meister. You're not who you are when you're 12. You're not who you are when you're 16. You're not. It's a development. 
It's an ongoing process. This is his idea. We have, uh, we have what we call a coming-of-age story. People are familiar with the coming-of-age story? The concept there is there's this moment. There's this event. There's this time. Something will happen to you, stressful, painful usually, and then you'll be of age. And you're done. And usually you're about 19. You've come of age, that's it. It is roughly the exact opposite of what Goethe was driving at. You don't, in fact, it doesn't, the Wilhelm Meister's Lariar stops, but it really doesn't end. There's no conclusion. It just sort of wanders off. Because he didn't believe you ever stopped. You didn't believe that there was this time where you were of age. Congratulations, you've done it. You were, there it is. Um, and like I said, the coming-of-age story is so common in our culture, and it invariably makes this, I think, fundamental mistake. I'm in total agreement with Goethe on this. You don't stop. And yet we love that narrative. We love that story that now you're done. Now I can rest. Now I don't have to learn anymore. Now I can just be. I'm a pot. I'm a, I, mean, I would say I'm a plant, but even Nietzsche or Goethe argued that plants develop. Right? Even plants he has going on. So this, this notion of development and action never stops. It's core to his belief system. Um, then the Sorcerer's Apprentice. We're all familiar with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. How many people know this was from Goethe? Not Disney. Not original Walt Disney. This is, this is Goethe. Right? Uh, excuse me? No, no. It's, it's, uh, it's Goethe. He's, he's, he's the guy. Um, then he did Winkleman and his Century, which is a, a sort of an art and architectural history tour, again. Um, and then we get a crucial moment, Faust, part one, closet drama. If anybody's ever tried to read Faust, good on you. You should read it because, one, it's hilarious, and two, it's completely incoherent. Um, it's a big old mess of a thing. It's not a play. Everybody says, oh, it's a great play. It is not a play. There are scenes that have, like, 18 speaking parts, 27 costume change. I mean, it's, it's they occasionally stage it in Germany. I don't know why, just, just because they feel like they have to, I think. I think it's like 18 hours long in performance for both parts. And it's, it's like 187 scene change. It's just ridiculous. It, it is this just crazy, crazy play. But again, his core values are played out here. One, why is it so crazy? Because... He, he wants everything going on. He wants the sense of development. He wants the sense of possibility, of many-sidedness of things. The central of it, too, in the, in the Faust myth that we're used to, Faust sells his soul for something. Knowledge, insight, pleasure. And then at the end of it, the devil comes and takes his soul. This is not the story that Goethe tells. The first thing to note in this is that uh, Mephistopheles, the, the, the lead devil character, there's some others, but the, he's the main guy, um, chats with God in the second opening. There's two openings. We won't talk about the other one. Like I said, it's a big mess. Uh, the, the, the second opening, uh, Mephistopheles and God are chatting in heaven, um, and God says, wow, people down there, they just keep making the same mistakes over and over again and inflicting pain on themselves. Why do they do that? And Mephistopheles says, well, look at, look at Faust. How about I go down and mess with him? God says, yeah, that's great. Go ahead. And when Mephistopheles walks off stage, God says roughly, ah, this is good because Faust had sort of stopped. 
Mephistopheles will get him going again. Mephistopheles is good because he gets us going again. He's there to tempt us, to prod us, to move us from stasis. So he's not an evil character. He's, he's actually he's a hilarious character. He's, he got pretty much the best lines in the play. Many of them go right to Mephistopheles. And then the deal that Faust makes with the devil is not that, oh, you give me something and then I die and you get my soul. The deal is, you show me the world, and if I ever say, stop, no more, freeze the world here, then that's the end. That's it. And he never does, and Mephistopheles never gets his soul. It has this incredibly bizarre, tragic ending with his love interest Gretchen. Actually, lots of deaths and mother dying and kids dying and she's going to be executed. And it's, it's incredible, but, it, but it's not Faust. He's fine. He's alive and well at the end of the, of, of the first part, which sort of threw people off. Now, Faust is such an amazing, rich amalgamum um, that... Goethe, who from up until then was known as the writer of Werther, the sorrows of young Werther, all of a sudden became known as the writer of Faust. And for the rest of his life, people said, okay, we know you're working on the second part. Can we see it? He's like, no. We know you're working. And he did. He worked on it for the rest of his life. He worked on this for, I think it's for 37 years, he worked on Faust 1 and 2. He just kept working on it and working on it. But where we want an order in a system, you just don't get it. Uh, Kaufman argues, or somebody argues, and I think it's fundamentally correct, is it's more like the Bible in that it's just this all kinds of stories strung together in different places and different scenes, but there's always something there. But there's not a, there's not a system there. There's not a message. There's not an allegory. You can't say, well, this means this and that means that, and you shouldn't sell your soul to Mephistopheles because bad things happen to you. Actually, if you read Faust, it's like, oh, yeah, you should absolutely get Mephistopheles to hang out with because that would be great. In the second half of Faust, which you get to at the end of his life, but, but it, 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 it opens with him and the empire, and this is one of the things I just love, and this is to give you, again, back to his concreteness. And in this empire, the, the, the emperor of this empire is bankrupt. And he's like, oh, you know, if anybody could do anything to help me out. So Mephistopheles and Faust come up with this plan. They say, look, you've got gold under your land. Yep. And the emperor says, yeah. He says, well, just issue bonds on that gold. Then you'll have plenty of money. People are like, okay. So then all of a sudden he's rolling in, quote unquote, money that's been issued against the gold that's under the ground. Whether it could be mined or not seems to be completely irrelevant. And it's like, wow, what a weird way to start the second half of this epic. But it is, again, this message. Uh, is this real money? Is this fake money? Where does this come from? Is Mephistopheles helping this guy? Or are we injuring this guy? Or is this just totally... I mean, what is going on? Why are we all of a sudden talking about advanced bond money rating schemes? It's very odd. Uh, you know, and, 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 but this is continually what he's doing. You don't expect this from him. So again, Faust becomes hugely popular. Um, so he does a bunch of other things. But then, of course, having spent, now, now having written, again, 
most famous poems being written in German language, Goethe's. Drama, most famous dramatist in the German language during his lifetime, Goethe. With Faust, the most famous, whatever the hell that is, Goethe. And the novel, Werther and Wilhelm Masters, Larry R. So that's pretty good for someone. So what does he do? He writes this big, long work called The Theory of Colors, which is an attack on Newtonian science. Because that's what you expect next, right? Let's just go at Newton. Uh, we don't like that bastard. Um, and it turns out, once again, Goethe is correct. And Newton is wrong in some fundamental ways. And to understand why this is such a significant work, and by the way, this is still controversial today. People still, I mean, physicists are still arguing about this. It's just, you know, there's this several hundred year raging scientific debate about whether Goethe was on to anything or not. I think undoubtedly he is, but you'll see what the problem is. So Newton's concept, of which we're probably all familiar, is you come up with a law and you express it in mathematics. And that is fixed for all eternity. There you go. You can understand why Goethe would hate this concept. For Goethe, it's nature, the human experience, is not fixed by a law and is not fixed for all time, and you cannot represent it mathematically. And he goes at the theory of color because he says, look, everything Newton tries to tell us about color is wrong because it's not how you experience color. There, you know, the, the notion that these wavelengths of color and that that's what determines the color, he says it's just nonsense. And he, and he runs through a whole series of experiments. He says, hold up a piece of white paper to the sunlight and look at the color. Now hold up a second piece of white paper behind that and look at the color. The color changes. Look at water on, light on water. Look at one color and then look at another color. That color will look different because you've been looking at this other color. Now look at that color and look back at the other color. Now the other color looks different. And it's this systematic phenomenological, as you experience, as you actually encounter color, he just works through it. And he says, Newton might be right in some abstract mathematical realm, but if you want to talk about how people experience color, it does not work at all the way Newton says it does. And it, so there's this fundamental division. Now, Goethe was wrong about some of the things that he was arguing, but again, like with the plants, his, his basic observation is absolutely correct. It's, it's irrefutable because you can run the experiments. You can actually, you know, most of them are very simple to run. And he did. He ran a lot of experiments. And he came back with the look. It's not fixed. It's not absolute. It is relative. How you experience it depends on what you're doing, what the lighting is, what colors you've been looking at before, um, you know, where you are out there. It's just all these things change the way you perceive and experience color, which is what's important. The changing, the development, that happening of color. Color is not a thing, it's an activity. It doesn't exist as an absolute in the world, it only exists in our experience of it in our minds. By the way, this is still a, a, an ongoing debate. I mean, this is not going to be solved, it's not been going to be solved, I don't think, but it, it is an absolute clear expression of this central idea, which is one, you observe carefully, and then that's what you respond to, and then two, you resist abstraction, you resist fixing things, and you resist absolute laws because all those things are fundamentally inhuman. 
And so bizarrely, like I said, having done all of the stuff that he's done up to this point, you then roll out this multi, very long attack on Newton, which again, nobody was expecting. People weren't thinking, oh, we can't wait for Goethe's treatment of Newton, because that's going to be great. But it was a cause celeb. And again, by the way, if, if, for, if you're a painter, uh, painters are like, well, forget Newton. If you want to know about color, you read Goethe. He's been hugely influential in the world of aesthetics and painting and, and decorating because how you experience light is the way Goethe said we experience light, um, which is not what Newton said. Wow, it's almost, again, it's almost hard to go through all this. Let's see, the theory of color says, great. You should look at those great illustrations in that, too, like with the plant book. Oh, by the way, I should mention with the plant morphology book, um, MIT just put out one that has illustrations and photographs of all of the plants that he talks about. It's a wonderful edition. It's quite, it's quite lovely if you can find it. I think there's a lot of the pictures are available online that sort of illustrate what he was talking about. And that just came out a couple of years ago from MIT Press. Um, so there you are. So now you're pushing 70 here, by the way. You've, you've attacked Newton. You've rewritten the way plants develop. You've most famous writer in virtually every genre of your language, all famous throughout Europe. You're a court minister. So you think, well, I'm 70. What should I do? I think I'll learn Persian, because why not? Well, he encountered, this is where Eastern literature, the literature of Asia begins to filter into Europe. And he was so impressed with Persian poetry in particular that he thought, well, I think it's time to learn Persian. And then he wrote what may be the first example of sort of world literature, a term, by the way, that comes from Goethe, Weltliter. It's, it's this idea of, of a world literature. There's not a national literature. There's a world literature. By the way, this is a revolutionary concept at the time. Because before it was, this is the literature that speaks the soul and the heart and the experience of the German peoples. It's a national literature. This is a local literature. He's like, no. No, 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 no. There's a world literature. We can read Persian poetry and be moved by it because Persians and Germans aren't that different. Or at least not always all that different. And again, so this is his resistance to anything fundamental. And there's one world literature. There's a, in a way, you could think of there's almost a realm of literature that is above the world, if you want to think of it that way. But he said, you know, there's great literature in Persian. Um, and so he wrote the, 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 the Western Eastern Divan. It just means a collection of poems, the West East, the meaning of the poetry of the West and of the East. It just blew people away. Again, once again, they weren't expecting it, right? They're like, what is he going to do now? Oh, he learned Persian and started writing poetry in these weird modalities that we've never seen before in the German language on subjects that, that normally aren't treated. Wow. And again, it introduced a concept that we take for granted now. We still struggle with it, by the way. We say, oh, um, I, the one I always love, oh, you know, she's a great African-American writer. It's like, no, no, no. Great writer or not great writer but you don't need the qualifiers. She's a great writer or she's not a great writer. What? No qualifiers. It's world literature. Is it good poetry? Yes. It's not the great poetry of Persia. It's great poetry that comes from Persia. It's everybody's poetry. It's, it's, it's part of our world. This is what uh, Goethe was just adamant about this. We can share this. We can access this. Um, 
And so he, ended, I mean, he really just, dry, this was his idea. He's like, here he's a 70 year old and he's learning Persian. And he's like, great, here's the next thing I want to do. I want to get this, this out. I want people to see it, to experience something that's been out there, but we haven't had access to it. And th by the way, this is a hugely influential movement that happens at this time, not just because of Goethe, although he gave it a really good uh, role, because uh, he was so famous as sort of the official imprimatur, um, that it just got people excited, and the translation started to roll. Uh, it, by the way, it should be important, safety note here, by the way, because you'll, you'll hear a lot about Western imperialism. Um, the Germans were some of the early scholars of the Oriental languages, Arabic in particular. They were not an imperial power. In fact, it was the Ottoman Empire that was the imperial power. So historically, this is completely inaccurate to suggest that. And you'll hear this sometimes, that, oh, you know, they're learning the languages so they can impress their imperial power on some lowly, foreign, you know, dark-skinned country. In this case, it was the absolute opposite. This totally fragmented German series of duchies. Lots of scholars said, wow, let's learn Arabic because we're fascinated by that. Um, not for imperial purposes, but like with Nietzsche or with uh, Goethe because of love for the language. Interest in the history. Right? So this notion that it's all conquest and power is, no, there's also love and interest and joy and beauty, which is one of the things that he's, he, was, he was pushing for. Um, and so then, because he wanted to make sure you didn't miss the point that, that Wilhelm Meister had no ending, he included uh, Wilhelm Meister's Wanderjahre, which is just, you know, Wilhelm Meister wanders about a bit. Um, and it's, if, if Wilhelm Meister's Lariar has no ending, Wilhelm Meister's Wanderjahre has no narrative at all. Uh, almost. I mean, it is, it's, it's even more wandery than before. But again, it's the same idea. The development continues. Um, you don't know where he's going. Another great quote from, from Goethe, you never get so far as when you don't know where you're going. You, you know, that's, that's how you get places, is not to know. The knowing often slows us down. Uh, and then he releases Faust Part Two. really is not released totally until he's, after he's dead because he, he held it back. People were begging him for it. And then it came out and everyone went, what? And I think they felt obligated to say, wow, this is great. But what they were really thinking was, What? But if you want to read something, read it, because it's like, what? It's crazy. It's great. It's, it really is this just, it's like a stew. You keep pulling out, oh, look, I think that's a carrot. Oh, that's great. Ooh, potatoes. I like potatoes. Oh, look, a turnip. Oh, I like turnips. You know, oh, some beef. Oh, that's nice. But you're like, what am I eating? I have no idea. This doesn't, oh. Um, and then as part of the history of Goethe is he was very self-conscious about knowing that his letters were going to be quoted, um, and that his conversations were going to be quoted. And so there's this massive works like his conversations with Eckerman, where he just talked to Eckerman for a couple of years before he died so that they could record all his thoughts and observations and experiences for posterity. So that's why there's 140 volumes of his plus volumes of his works. It's because he really put it out there. Uh, Nietzsche said it was the, the conversation with Eckerman was the greatest work in the German language. He says there's more greatness there than any other place. It was, I mean, hugely influential on his thinking and a lot of other people's. And part, not because, again, there's no system. It's just here's, if you, if you read it, you, one, it seems like a conversation where I sometimes like, okay, this is going no place. But then 
Here's a person who's thinking without any screens, very unobstructed. He says crazy things. He says enlightening things. He says things that make you cringe. Like 200 years later, you're like, ooh, that might be a little too liberated even for us. You know, I was like, oh, wow, you know, Goethe, hang on there, there, buddy. You know, and so it, it, this continual struggle. And so, again, forgotten why, there is no system. There is no forgiveness for us. There is no place of rest. There is no lack of judgment. If you read Goethe, you feel like you're being judged all the time. Because he wants to say, look, be who you are. Be a better version of who you are. Love yourself. Love your world. Even in its imperfections. You have to live in it. You may as well enjoy it. Make it as pleasant as possible. See your faults and forgive yourself for them. Be happy with them. Enjoy them. They're as much of us as anything else. But don't ignore them. It's this, it, it, it's this incredible tone. And again, it's not that he hectors anybody. He's not a hectorer. It's just there. It's just this unvarnished encounter or, uh, with this mind, with this person, with this, with this you know, sort of spirit of existence that kind of makes you recoil a little bit. Because, hey, it's powerful and it's moving. But it's just this consistent drive. You know, grow, be, do. Don't worry about it. Try it out. Don't suffer. Enjoy. Be happy. Be glad. Try it again. Fail with a smile on your face. You know, we don't control the forces of history. They just overwhelm us. They have nothing to do with us. History has nothing to do with us. The present has nothing to do with us. He was very clear on this. He said, don't exaggerate your role in the world. We're nobodies. We don't matter except to us. And that's plenty good. And, and this, is, this is basically what he acted out. People wanted another Werther novel so bad they could taste it. It would be like J.K. Rowling wrote the first Harry Potter novel, best-selling thing ever, and she said, well, I don't write anymore. That, and the next thing she wrote was sort of a French romantic comedy. And that made a great film, and so then she wrote a, a, a history of the development of net, uh, you know, agriculture in the Netherlands. And people were like, what? are you doing? And the answer is, whatever I'm interested in at the moment, which might be different next week. I'm sorry if it's not what you're interested in, but it's what I'm interested in. And so that notion also finally puts us in touch with the last thing. Art doesn't come from suffering. It doesn't come from pain or misery or being an outcast or downtrodden or being mad or being a genius or being a prodigy, being rich or being poor. It comes from a certain kind of person. Not one kind of person, but one of the kinds of people it comes from is this incredibly erudite, pleasant, insightful, interesting man of the world, courtier, judge, chief of minds. I mean, really, he was inspecting minds. It's incredible. Uh, and yet produced throughout his life astounding variety of works that I think, for me, are some of the most inspirational works you can possibly read. So I encourage people to dig through it, but be aware there is no system there. It is just this big, warm bath that you swim in, and eventually you go, wow, this is kind of great.
Anyway, Goethe, forgotten thinker. Thank you.